Right, well, it's very nice to be in Vienna and at the energy community. And uh, as I am British, I suppose I have to give you an, a Brexit observation. And my Brexit observation is that um, if the vote, God help us, goes the wrong way on June the 23rd, on June the 24th, you may well be receiving a British application for membership of the energy community. <laughs> Let's hope not. Now, I'm going to talk about Nord Stream. And obviously, if anyone has seen the YouTube of my presentation in the European Parliament, you may have a very good idea of what I'm going to say, and it isn't positive. But I actually want to be, uh, I want to be, I want to give a, a, a positive element to this. Uh, and I'm going to talk about Nord Stream and go through some of the legal issues. But I also want to suggest uh, another approach, because I think there is a real issue here of continually the Russians coming up with new pipeline projects and missing the plot. And my argument is, is that there is a deal to be done between Europe and uh, the uh, Russian Federation in, in which uh, we do a grand deal, a grand bargain between access to the single market and an enlarged gas market and um, w uh, the provision of uh, large amounts of gas on a high volume, low price model. And that is where I think the future is. And the future isn't in building, attempting to build more pipelines. So let me just start with some of this. I think part of what's happened, I mean, you know, the story of Nord Stream 2, that, uh, that in June of last year in St. Petersburg, Nord Stream 2 was announced. And then we have um, the uh, shareholders' agreement signed very speedily in September in Vladivostok. I think Gazprom and its commercial partners have fundally, fundamentally misconstrued the... Uh, legal and political context in which they're operating. Now, it is not 2006. The third energy package is now in force. We don't merely have the third energy package fully in force. We also have a decisional practice. We have case law, which makes it, as I will explain, very difficult to push Nord Stream 2 through. We also have other changes. I mean, you could see this a little in the European Parliament with the ferocity of the green opposition. The renewables and climate change agenda didn't really exist in 2006. It does exist now, and there is substantial interest to sustain it. And then the other thing you cannot ignore, and I know that uh, Reinhardt will talk about it not being a business project, but you cannot ignore the fact that Russia has invaded another European state. It has annexed part of another European state and is currently in military conflict in part of, a, of that same European state. And, and that changes the context. That changes the context substantially. And I think you have to look at what is really going on and look at that context and ask, is it possible to get this deal through? And I think you could see the difficulty in the European Parliament hearing. I was quite, uh, last week, I was quite surprised by the scale of the opposition, because you didn't just have the usual suspects, the Poles and the Bolts. You had, uh, as I say, a very large green lobby who saw this, the phrase which was used is that Nord Stream 2 is a super keystone which should be opposed, a fossil fuel pipeline which should not be built. You had the economic liberals who saw this as an anti-single market project. You had Christian Democrats who were concerned about Russia. So this is a huge political constituency in the parliament. 
You've also got, uh, almost without exception, all the NGOs who have turned up uh, at the hearing were opposed. Uh, you've also got more than half the member states opposed. I mean, one of the points they say about this is that when Nord Stream 1 was going through, all the Central and Eastern European and Baltic states had just joined. They were still feeling their way. Now they're much more active and know how to make the EU work. And then you've got the opposition of the United States as well. This is no small, this is no small barrier to bringing Nord Stream into operation. And I think the other element of this, which uh, as lawyers we are probably more interested in is the legal issues. And the legal issues are very difficult. I mean, if we just go, I'm not, there, is, there, are, there are a number of other issues, but let me just focus on three core ones. And it seems to me, first of all, is the third, third party access obligation. Uh, how on earth can you fit Nord Stream 2 with the TPA obligations of the gas directive? And the only entry point is Russia, and Gazprom has an export monopoly. Uh, then there's ownership and bundling. Uh, any new infrastructure, has to be subject to the uh, uh, to ownership and bundling. All of the uh, all of the um, members of the um, consortium are gas suppliers. You have a very serious ownership and bundling problem. The third element is Article 11 certification. How do you get round Article 11 certification? I mean, the, the issue here is. Uh, you've got to look, of course, at the supply security of the member states, which presumably will be Germany, where it lands, and of the European Union. Now, Nord Stream 2, uh, for, because where it is a non-EU-owned pipeline. Nord Stream 2 is located in Switzerland. Uh, the Gazprom has 50% of the shares. If you take the, the merger control test for control, uh, it's clearly a non-EU-owned pipeline. And the difficulty with the supply security issue is that uh, first of all, the core supply security issue for Central and Eastern Europe is that Nord Stream 2 will remove throughput security. That, essentially, at the moment, gas flowing from and transit from Ukraine through Central and Eastern European states <coughs> provides those Central and Eastern European states with a degree of security because you can't cut off the Central and Eastern European states without cutting off uh, supplies in Western Europe. Now, part of the German response to this is to say, and this is what Sigmar Gabriel was saying a few weeks ago in Poland, he was saying, well, we can do reverse flow uh, for, from Germany to uh, Poland as we have done for Ukraine. And the Polish answer to this, not unreasonably, was, well, we've talked to the Ukrainians, and Alexei Miller was trying to, in 2014 and 2015, was trying to reduce the amount of gas going to uh, the European Union to stop reverse flows to Ukraine. So that isn't a very uh, safe and secure response from the point of view of the Central and Eastern European states. So I think those issues of third-party access, ownership and bundling, and Article 11 certification are very crunchy, very real, and very difficult. Now, you can argue Article 36 exemption. Again, there are some issues about can it only, Article 36 only apply between two member states, but let's assuming we take a purposive interpretation of the gas directive and Article 36 can in principle apply. You then have two problems. One is that, the, that it's not in the criteria of Article 36 additional supply. It is diversionary supply. It's merely shifting the gas from Ukraine to, uh, through the Baltic Sea. So it's not additional supply. 
Now, I've noticed that since I started making this point, some of the Nord Stream uh, uh, officials have started changing their argument and saying there will be additional supply. But I remember this argument uh, uh, last time round with Nord Stream 1 when we were promised additional supply. And what actually happened was that the amount of gas coming through Ukraine dropped and the gas went through Nord Stream 1 instead. So I think on the basis of previous practice, that is what will happen again. And equally, there is a competition issue here, which is another criteria of Article 36. Just think of what this would mean. You're increasing Nord Stream 1 would increase the uh, presence of already a dominant market player on the German market. It would give Gazprom the capacity to choose between a series of pipelines which way to go, who to supply, uh, and price and territorial discrimination will be much easier to achieve. How is that pro-competitive? The other issue is, and I think this is one of the major reasons for Nord Stream 2, is to get into the market and to be able to vastly supply Western Europe before uh, LNG comes into the European market at scale. None of these are pro-competitive reasons to, uh, to give uh, Article 36 exemption. Now, part of the argument which is used uh, to respond to all this is say somehow EU law does not apply. So let me run through you some of the some of these arguments are more absurd than others. But let me just run through them. One of them is pipelines in the sea have legal immunity. Now I have scoured the Ake Communautaire and I can find no legal principle which says if you stick something in the sea EU law does not apply. Uh, this is not part of the Ake Communautaire. And uh, the difficulty with this is that and this is you know, I've seen this in, in, written by fairly esteemed uh, uh, energy analysts. I have seen uh, papers which tell me that uh, it is an open question whether EU law applies in the territorial sea of a member state. It is not an open question. It is law, you know, this is law 101. It says, you ask a student in the first year, um, you know, what is the field of application of the law of England and Wales, or indeed the law of Germany? They say, you say, the answer is, to the physical territory, the land of the state, and to the territorial sea out to 12 miles. And given you have got 100 kilometers or so of Nord Stream running through the territorial waters of Denmark and Germany, the EU has jurisdiction. Now, that, that, is not, that is not an arguable point. Uh, exclusive economic zone, we have very good case law in the Habitats Directive, case 6-04, Commission of the UK, where it was pretty clear that the court's view was that, um, where possible, the EU law should apply in exclusive economic zone. There is an additional argument in the case of Nord Stream 2, that if you take the view that putting it in the exclusive economic zone is an attempt to escape the application of EU law, the usual Court of Justice's view of any such avoidance strategies is to uh, flatten them by ensuring the full application of EU law. So I think that's one difficult issue to take forward as a way round. The next one is the Article 34 upstream pipeline argument. Again, the difficulty with this is, yes, you, you don't have to apply uh, the full third energy package to upstream pipelines, but it's not an upstream pipeline. It's just the pipeline, Nord Stream, does not connect a fossil fuel production facility um, with a, 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 to another consumer or party. It is a connecting pipeline between the Russian transmission system and the European transmission system. 
Uh, and I don't, again, you can't see how you can get around that. Plus, in addition to which, the Commission ruled in Southstream, um, internal rule, but still, uh, I actually suggested to the journalists in the room in the Parliament they might like to make some FOI requests on this. But uh, in Southstream, the Commission ruled that clearly um, Article 34 could not apply, and they took a similar view in relation to Nord Stream 1. So I sincerely don't see how they can make a different decision on this case, and Article 34 cannot simply bear the weight of the uh, proposal that Nord Stream makes for its application in that case. Then we have, um, again, this is, I think, fairly absurd, is that it's somehow unfair and discriminatory to apply the third energy package to uh, Nord Stream 2 when it wasn't applied to older pipelines. And what do they want us to do? We could immediately on full uh, uh, on the date of implementation in March 2011, we could have required full retroactive application to all existing pipelines. But we didn't do that on the basis of legitimate expectations, and we will see over time full adaptation to most of the pipelines, uh, the older pipelines. But clearly, if it's a new pipeline, the new law will apply to new pipelines. Again, this is not, you know, in terms of legal principle, this is not a diff difficult issue to raise. And then you've got um, the YAML pipeline which is a, a, an example of a, a, of a pipeline where the third energy package has been applied to a pipeline which is an export pipeline bringing gas from Russia via Belarus and into the EU. And the Polish end of the Yamal pipeline is being subject to full third energy package certification. Now, if it is, given that is the case, how can you not apply Nord Stream 2? Now, Mr. Lissick, who is the, um, the, um, the PR uh, executive for Nord Stream in the Parliament, he originally used the Article 34 argument, but then I think got a little confused. And uh, when I raised the YAML issue, he said, ah, the distinction between YAML and Nord Stream 2 is that YAML enters the single market, but Nord Stream 2 does not. Now, frankly, I do not understand that, because as far as I'm aware, Germany is part of the single market. And, uh, and therefore, it, as it enters the territorial sea, at least, certainly, it enters the single market of the European Union. So my point about all of this is, uh, I think, what has happened is that there's a huge amount of obfuscation deliberately uh, uh, brought up in order to try and um, obfuscate the issues. But the point is, is the legal issues here are quite, many of these are quite clear, quite hard. And the danger is, is the Nord Stream partners will end up, and possibly Germany, in the EU courts where they will lose. And my advice to the Central and Eastern European states was, if the, this is, proceeds any further, then the basic message should be to the Nord Stream partners, and if necessary the Commission, is we will see you in court. There is actually one more, and this is, I'm going for the bonus po points here for the most exotic legal argument uh, of, of the conference. And my exotic legal argument is this. There is one other public international law argument which is relevant. And this goes back to the context of the aggression between Russia, uh, 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 aggression of Russia against Ukraine. Under Article 24 of the UN Charter, well, flowing from that and the case law of the International Court of Justice, there are essentially two obligations for third states when uh, a state is invaded, uh, occupied, and annexed. The first is not to recognize it. The second is not to facilitate it. And the question is, does the, is Nord Stream 2 a facilitation of the waging of aggressive war 
against Ukraine. Now, think about it in economic warfare terms. What are you going to do to the enemy power? You're going to strip it of resources, and clearly Ukraine will be stripped of some resources, about $2 billion in transit fees every year. And also, by virtue of ending the use of the transit pipeline, you'd make Ukraine less important, less valuable, and more easy to easily to isolate uh, uh, from the uh, European states. So you see those be legitimate war aims from the point of view of the Russian Federation, and Nord Stream 2 assists those war aims. Therefore, are the, corpor uh, does, are the corporate partners of Gazprom in the Nord Stream uh, uh, pipeline facilitating the waging of aggressive war against Ukraine? And that raises another a number of issues. First of all, there's a public international law obligation on the, on, on the European Union in terms of how it applies its rules as a result. There is also the UNCLOS issue. Is can the UNCLOS, can the um, the littoral states through whom, through which the Nord Stream pipeline will go, can they permit the an ex, uh, the pipeline to go through uh, because of their duties to not facilitate the waging of aggressive war? Can they require the Russians to obtain a, an opinion from the Law of the Sea Tribunal in Hamburg before they proceed? And the other issue is, of course, <clears throat> whether or not the United States may see this as a basis <clears throat> on which they can legitimately um, <clears throat> uh, use the US Treasury sanctions system in order to sanction the Nord Stream pipeline. So all of this, of course, is rather negative. So I just want to finish with a positive point. And it seems to me that, as I said at the beginning, this is really... Uh, We've had, well, we've had Nord Stream 1, we've had South Stream attempted, we've had Turkish Stream, we now have Nord Stream 2. And the point about all of this is that the Russians, I fear, are missing the picture. The big picture is that we're building, through the uh, energy liberalisation programme and the application of European competition rules, a very large single market in gas. We know that renewables cannot deliver uh, sustainable energy uh, current technology at scale and at reasonable costs. Gas, natural gas, 50% less CO2 emitting than coal, provides a significant green way forward to reduce CO2 emissions and provide a backup for existing renewables. There's a potential of significantly expanding the natural gas market. Gazprom is the nearest supplier, the nearest, the gas vault to Europe, could provide gas on a very large scale along with Norway into the European Union, and we could have a grand bargain on gas, with the Russians having substantial access to the market and providing gas on a low volume, uh, sorry, on a high volume, low price model. And that, I would argue, is should be the future and of what the European Union and uh, corporate energy Europe should be trying to achieve are not playing with more pipelines which have significant legal troubles. I shall stop there. Thank you.